Babylon, if you want to bring some Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Wednesday, his weekly Monday appearance, except it has occurred on a Wednesday, managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron, Dave Cameron is the guest on this program as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week, we begin with a practical matter, what do you do if an older person in your life, it could be a family member or a friend, says to you, I have just read an article concerning pace of play in baseball, and in particular Rob Manfred's comments on it, Commissioner Rob Manfred's comments on it, and some strategies he's considering to make the pace of play more brisk. What do you think about it, young person, or slightly younger person? This is an issue I bring to Dave Cameron. I say, Dave Cameron, Dave Cameron, how should I reply to people who are asking me about pace of play. It helps me to formulate a stock answer to that. Beyond that, uh, the matter of remuneration, which is uh, also known as payment or compensation in the major leagues. Tampa Bay center fielder Kevin Kiermeyer just signed an extension for roughly $50 million. Ender Inciarte, meanwhile, a not particularly inferior player, one with similar skills and similar service time, signed a markedly less substantive deal. Why? Is vaguely what I asked Dave Cameron. And he responds... Also, the Cubs agreed to pay Chris Bryant, that's MVP, National League MVP, Chris Bryant, $1.05 million. Chris Bryant accepted that. The Red Sox offered Mookie Betts, that's nearly MVP, Mookie Betts, the Boston Red Sox. The club offered him slightly less. He did not accept it, although that's how much he'd be paid anyway, because he has no choice in the matter. Our teams compensating young players who produced excellent numbers and yet to have absolutely no leverage at all. I asked Dave Cameron about that as well. That is not all, however. What else happens in this particular episode is Dave Cameron recites a very strange Dr. Seuss lyric. There's no one else in Maine that wants to buy cocaine. Once again, for your enjoyment, that is a very strange and perhaps non-extant Dr. Seuss lyric. There's no one else in Maine that wants to buy cocaine. That whimsical interlude and others like it and what's to follow. What I have to tell you right now is simply that Fangraph's membership exists. The purpose of this brief passage in the introduction is to inform everyone that Fangraph's memberships exist. And beyond that, there is a sort of membership known as Fangraph's ad-free yearly membership, which allows readers to be liberated from the great burden of banner advertisements, and in so doing, to experience faster browsing speeds while reading Fangraphs.com. That is a message that I have said about Fangraph's ad-free yearly memberships and Fangraph's memberships in general. Okay, with that, let's go to our conversation what is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does the future managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron? When does it begin? Right now. This is not practical analytics, but it is, it is a practical application of advanced metrics or whatever. Uh... Um, as you know, this probably happens to you as well. There are certain people in my community who know what I do for a living. Yeah. Um, b- because they know that, they expect that I have information, right? Or that I have an opinion about many uh, baseball-related matters. These people and don't it, know you that well, do they? No, they, well, that's true. Yeah, that's what you're getting at, the, the core of the matter. So uh, there was today in the Portland Press-Herald, which is the daily paper for Portland, Maine, there was a there was actually a, a column I think by Jeff Baker from the Seattle Times. It was written by, but it was it was pretty much just a discussion, a pretty generic discussion of the pace of play issues with which baseball is contending, and specifically with which Commissioner Rob Manfred is contending. 
and uh, I think probably documenting some of the ways that uh, Manfred et al. might uh, attempt to make the pace of play more quick, make games shorter. Okay? Okay. So, so uh, Russell at the cafe, he's an older guy. He's he's right about the sort of guy that uh, one might have seen at the native plant talk a couple weeks ago. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, similar demographic. He put down the paper. It had been on the front page or at least the front page of sports. He put it down on my my cafe table, and he said, what do you think about this? Uh, and I realized I had no answer. I've read the – I think Craig Edwards has written about pace of play on multiple occasions. Uh, and so I have a vague notion that some of what Manfred has discussed ha- would not uh, make games any shorter at all. What are – then, what are the main contributing factors to lengthened games, and what should I tell Russell next time? Uh, so, I think the big problem that we've seen in baseball over the last, say, 10 years is the time between pitches has gone way up. And this is something that baseball actually fixed a couple of years ago, or fixed is maybe an overstatement. They addressed a couple of years ago uh, when they put an initiative in that said, hey, batters, stop fixing your gloves. You have to keep one foot in the batter's box. Hey, pitchers, don't scratch your nuts on the mound between every pitch. Uh, try and speed things up a little bit. And because they were, um, you know, making a point of this, they talked to the players in spring training. I think we saw like a two-second reduction in average time between pitches, uh, I think it was in the 2015 season. Um, and that, when you account for the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of pitches in a season, two seconds between pitches, cuts off something like 10 minutes a game. I mean, it, it makes a big deal. And it's, you know, it's not just 10 minutes of like really entertaining action. It's the 10 minutes when no one is doing anything. Uh, last year, Major League Baseball didn't make as big a point of making an emphasis and players were like, oh, cool. The, you know, the, the cops went back to the, to the donut shop and they're not watching anymore. Let's scratch our nuts and undo our batting gloves and do all the things that we like to do to slow the game down and we just went right back to where we were in 2014 so um i think that's kind of the from my position the primary issue like length of game uh, especially the postseason is often talked about when we have these four-hour playoff games that end after midnight a lot of that is you know advertising and the fact that they want to start the games later so that west coast people can get home uh and they don't want to start them at work because a large part of the population still lives on the west coast well especially Um, if the playoff game includes a west coast team exactly right so that's like a more challenging situation but during the regular season uh where we're seeing the average game length get to like three hours ish somewhere in there if you could just eliminate the total dead action between pitches, you'd have most of the problem solved. So dead action between pitches, uh, and you say that's roughly two seconds per pitch uh, if it's if everything's going all right? Yeah, I mean, that's probably the realistically what we can speed it up. When they made the the emphasis a couple years ago, that's, I think, what we got is a two-second per pitch improvement. Um, right now, I think our pace of play, our pace and statistic on the site says that the average pitcher takes something like 23 or 24 seconds between pitches. Um, if you could get that down to 21 or something, you've you've shaved a lot of time off each game and, and gotten rid of the worst part of baseball. So has Manfred mentioned this offseason uh, returning to the sort of uh, the the slightly more vigilant um, experience of two years ago, the vigilant umpires. So they haven't said for sure that they're gonna you know show up at camp and be like hey players stop doing this again. They talked about pitch clocks and there's a pitch clock structure thing in the minor leagues where there's an actual clock that I think is 20 seconds long and 
it counts down and says, hey, you know, this is the time you have to throw a pitch. And it's actually worked really well in the minor leagues. Uh, the players do not want a pitch clock in the major leagues at this point, and so that idea was rejected. Um, so how well they can enforce the rule without an actual clock um, remains to be seen. There also is there is there some sort of correlation between because uh, I know that I know that relievers tend to take longer in between yeah. pitches. They also tend to be working in higher leverage situations. Right, those things so, are not coincidental. Right, and uh, they tend to take longer as the, um, the leverage index increases. Right, um, but it, do pitchers actually if they're taking more time? Do they actually pitch better in those cases? Um, well, we know relievers pitch better than starters in general, um, but we think that's not because they take longer between pitches, but just because they throw harder, they don't have to face same-handed hitters, they have natural advantages of coming in and saying, okay, I only have to face you once in the game instead of second and third time. Um, so relievers do pitch better than starters, and relievers do take longer to pitch in between pitches than starters, but we think that that's not a causation effect. Could you say, like, a, who's, who's like a real offender? Pa- Pedro, Pedro Baez is the worst. Pedro, Pedro Baez, Baez is the worst. Pedro Baez should be shot out of a cannon. Okay. Well, that seems a bit severe, but... No, uh, no, that, that is actually a nice thing to do to him for, could for you all look the time at, he has killed. Could you compare the the pitches? If you if you took the 25% of pitches that um, during which uh, Pedro Baez uh, took the least amount of time, right? His, the, his quickest pace, uh, and compare them to the, the, the pitches, uh, the, the 25% during which he took the... Uh, the most time he he produced the f- the slowest pace, uh, and maybe run some sort of uh, you say well at what point was the whiff rate higher? And if it's similar, then you could say hey listen Pedro Baez, and listen all pitchers, you're actually not uh, benefiting when you take longer. Yeah, I mean so this is, might get into like a little bit of like inside baseball how the sausage is made mm-hmm. that maybe people don't care about. Our pace of play actually isn't calculated at the pitch level, it's calculated at the at-bat level. So we basically take like the time the at-bat started and then the time the at-bat ended and we divide by total seconds between those beginning and end times. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually say like Pedro Baez took 29 seconds on this pitch and then he took 24 seconds on that pitch. We just say that at-bat took, you know, three minutes and he threw seven pitches. So on average it's whatever, 29 seconds per pitch or whatever it is. Um, so... I don't know if we can look at it at the granular pitch level and be like, your swinging strike rate on pitches where you take 28.4 seconds is this. But we could say, like, hey, Pedro Baez, you take longer per at-bat than anybody else, and on your super slow at-bats, here are your results. And on your super fast, you know, for you, uh, at-bats, here are your results. But then you get into a selection bias issue, right, where his long yeah. at-bats are probably against better hitters and higher level situations. and Yeah, yeah. And maybe he's more likely to throw. Uh, uh, he's att- he's attempting, maybe more like to get a swinging strike in those particular situations as opposed to. Right. There's a lot. You're right. There's a lot going on. Uh, but I assume that one of the uh, objections that players have, and f- for which you cannot fault them, is uh, if Pedro Baez, for example, feels as though he's more effective when he's taking a longer time, then you're essentially taking away his livelihood by. Uh, forcing him to shorten up. And if there's no hard and fast rule, right, if he's not being uh, given a ball uh, for, for breaking any rules, if he's not losing money for doing that, then it's very, it seems to be very hard to enforce. So I think the funny thing is this is actually a rule on the books, right? Like I think in the actual rule book it states that I think it's actually like 
12 or 15 seconds, some like really short number of time. Our pace number, it, like it doesn't include the catcher throwing the ball back and the umpire calling for ball. So, you know, when we're talking like 21, 22 seconds, it's not the pitcher standing on the rubber that entire time. I think the rule book actually says you have 12, it might be 15, something like that, seconds from when you put your foot on the rubber to when you deliver the pitch. And if mm-hmm. you don't do that, it's a ball. It's just never enforced. <laughs> so it's one of those rules that just basically doesn't exist, even though it does exist. Right. Well, it would seem a bit uh, uh, over-officious. For, I mean, if, if, uh, if a single umpire began calling that, don't you think? I mean, you know, it's got to start somewhere. It'd be kind of fun if, like, I don't know, Joe West or something became, like, the guy trying to enforce pace of play by himself. And he, like, every time Pedro Baez comes in, ball one, ball two. Like, eventually Pedro Baez would throw the ball. Like, I think there's no reason why we should give pitchers an unlimited amount of time to throw. Right? right, so there should be a line somewhere. The question is just where the line should be. Where yeah. the line should be, and also uh, how you're uh, enforcing it is is the trouble. It seems. Well, I would. I mean, I'm a fan of the. If you don't throw a pitch in this a lot of time, it's a ball. Like, yeah, sure. Just force them. To th- you have to do this, or we're gonna, you know, we're gonna assume that you threw a pitch outside. Okay. <clears throat> so what I will say to Russell at the cafe next time. Is well, uh, yes. I see that Rob Manfred has proposed a number of possibilities for combating pace of play. Uh, indeed, what the real problem appears to be is the time between pitches, which has grown uh, considerably in recent years. Yeah, and pitching changes, I assume, have some pitching changes are also a problem. I would say uh, it's somewhat harder problem to solve. Like uh, when people are like, "Oh, we want fewer pitching changes." None of the solutions work, really. Like, because pitchers get hurt and pitchers need to have the ability to say, like, my arm hurts, I need to come out of this game, you cannot really effectively dictate the number of pitching changes in a game uh, without either incentivizing um, players to lie about their arm hurting so that they get unlimited pitching changes because you can't say that a pitcher who is hurt has to keep pitching. Like, you just can't do that. Um, It seems unethical at certain levels. (laughs) It's like a huge moral hazard. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, it's one of those things where you can can change time between pitches without um, believing that you're threatening a pitcher's livelihood. You can't really change number of pitching changes without doing that. Yeah. All right. Well, I have uh, uh, I have something to say about that to to Russell. And, well, it should also be said with regard to pitching changes, right? Uh, relief pitchers, as you note, tend to be better than they're not necessarily a relief pitcher is not necessarily a better pitcher overall than a starter. Right. However, because he has the benefit of facing fewer batters, he he can. Uh, he doesn't have to worry about fatigue to the same degree. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I think, like, the like fewer pitching changes crowd is ignoring when they're like, man, look at the number of pitching changes, and the pitching change takes two and a half minutes or whatever because you get a commercial break and they warm up. Is like, if we just left tiring starters in longer, we'd score a lot more runs, and those innings that they were pitching would take longer. So if you're forcing less effective pitchers to stay out there, you're not going to get a, you know, a com- comparable inning because they're going to give up runs, and runs take a while. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, those are quite a bit there. Okay, well, that's that's great stuff. Um, so now I know what to say to Russell. Here's a uh, here's another question. This is actually a follow up from a discussion that I had with Travis Sachik just before the weekend uh, for for FanGraphs Audio. Uh, we were in the business of thinking about. Oh yeah, we were. Well, actually, this might have been with regard to. Well, it's, it's certainly an idea that you've expressed before. It was. It was concerning, in in particular, a piece that Travis Sochik had written about uh, Scott Boris's strategy 
of uh, bypassing front offices when right. looking for uh, for contracts for his players and going directly to ownership. In particular, I think uh, Mike Illich in Detroit and then the Lerner family. Yeah. Is that right? In Washington. Those yeah. are probably the most notable circumstances, although uh, it might not be uh, isolated to those two, two occasions. Um, and, well, of course, <clears throat> Scott Boris, I think, is uh, – um, I don't think he's everybody's favorite character mm-hmm. in the, uh, the the drama that is that is baseball, and, and yet uh, if one has any sort of inclination to sympathize with players, uh, not not because they're millionaires, but because they uh, are the ones who they they are putting the product in the field, they're responsible for the you know for the action, and also. Um, Salary, you know, like the way that uh, they're not always getting, it seems now, maybe as much, uh, as same sort of portion of the revenue as they have previously. Anyway, they're labor. If you're if you're sympathetic with labor, then you're probably sympathizing with players, right? Um, but but uh, Boris has taken some, in some cases, some uh, unusual means or um, uh, novel means to getting his players more money. He's not always beloved for that, though. Um, Here's the thing we came up to is it, it, it come to a question of evaluating agents, their efficacy. And this is relevant not only because of the conversation I had with Travis the other day, but also because of uh, a, considera- a a comment you made regarding Ender and Ciarte today yeah. in light of the Kevin Kiermeyer contract. Yeah. Uh, would you please um, more or less – uh, summarize what, what you had to say about NCRT and in particular his relationship with his agents. So on the Fangraph Slack group when I was uh, telling everyone that I was writing about the Kiermaier extension, I made an offhanded comment, which is mostly a joke uh, but contains some truth is that Edgar NCRT should be really mad at his representatives. I think I said he should fire them. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he got he signed a five-year, $30 million extension this winter um, and you know, $30 million. I would love $30 million, but I'm not as good at baseball as Ender Inciarte is. And for Ender Inciarte, he's a super two player, so he's going to go through arbitration four times. And then a starting salary, uh, you know, based on what he'd done previously up to this year, of $3 million, just assuming normal raises. You know, a standard raise for an, an everyday player is about $3 million. If you're really good, sometimes you get 4 or 5 $6 million. But standard, if you just keep playing every day, is about $3 million. bucks. If you just give him... $3 million raises and four trips to arbitration, he'd have made $30 million over the next four years. Instead, he signed a five-year contract that guaranteed him $30 million and gave the Braves an option for a sixth year, which I think could push the total like $39 million. So basically, he gave the Braves two free agent seasons for nothing. Right, and this is uh, particularly relevant today because Kiermaier has uh, signed an extension with Tampa Bay, and he's uh, they're very similar players. Yeah, NCRT is um, a little bit less of a hitter uh, historically. Um, I think he has a 95 WRC plus. But interestingly, he's also the kind of hitter that would have maybe gotten paid more than Kiermaier going through arbitration because he hits for high average and he steals bases. So Kiermaier has a little bit more uh, value from like doubles and triples, but not you know neither one's a huge home run guy. But I think if you look at kind of what their arbitration paths were going to be, they were actually probably pretty similar, and they had basically the same starting uh, salary. As super two players this year. 
And, and Kiermaier received what, 50? So 53.5 million over six years with an off seventh year option. So, um, Kiermaier got, you know, a $23 million guaranteed more than, than NCRTA. You would have expected him to get a little bit more because he is a better player with slightly better offensive numbers, but like, the the significant difference between them, uh, I mean, the NCAA contract wasn't a good one when it was signed, and the fact that Kiermaier, who's you know a very good comparison for for NCRT, uh got twenty four million more in guaranteed money does not not look good for Octagon today. And where where, where do they look relative to where do both those contracts look relative to essentially what we would have projected if we were you know running it through a, like a generic uh, a generic contract. Calculator. Yeah, these are cheap. I mean, especially the NCRT deal, but even the, the Kiermaier deal is also a big win for the Rays. Like, and as I, I think I wrote the post, like, this is the systematic undervaluation of defensive superstars that arbitration, uh, can't help but create because arbitration doesn't, basically doesn't include any defensive value. Like, you can, and Matt Swartz, who, uh, does the, the arbitration projections for MLB trade rumors and consults with some teams, has basically done this. Like, just re-engineered what the arbiters are going to come up with and generally is very close to the final decisions based on only offensive value and then position. I mean, position matters, but like there's no real room for a guy like Kiermaier to go in and be like, look at my defensive run saved. Like, no one cares. They they don't pay him for that. And, And the Players Association has not fought for a more fair evaluation of defensive superstars. And so guys like Kiermaier and Enfiarte are systematically undervalued by the system. Okay, so the, to back to this conversation with Travis, I was trying to figure out with regard to, in particular with regard to Matt Wieters, who of course was the benefit of some of Scott Boris's, uh, novel tactics. Chicanery. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I was trying to figure like, well if you, uh, how did Boris do for Matt Wieters with regard to, uh, a generic market price, right? And so if you say that you think that Wieters is worth, you know, whatever, 1.7 wins at roughly like eight or eight and a half million per year, did Wieters get the right amount? And it was, came out roughly average, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it was like, um, maybe Wieters actually received a little bit less than one might have expected. So I was thinking, is it possible to do a salary plus, right? So for, so in this particular contract, Boris would have gotten like a 90, Five sal sal plus right. salary plus right uh, we we make it an index stat because that's what we do um, uh, I guess I'm I guess I'm curious is this something that you could extend uh, to every agent to every deal that's signed uh, not really and you mm. you would basically require that every agent have the same distribution of types of players because if you wanted to do this. The agents who would look the best would just have relief pitchers and sluggers, right? Like, so if you just lined up with like, because um, dollar per war basically doesn't work for relief pitchers, like the scale right. is just wildly different for relievers than it is for every other player. So if you represented Aroldis Chapman and Kenley Jansen, <laughs> Mark Melanson, and all these other guys who get big monster contracts, your Sal Plus would be like, you know. 250 or something. And if you represent Ender Inciarte and Kevin Kiermeyer and Andrelton Simmons and like all these really good defensive players, your South Plus would be like 50. And you'd be like, man, this agent sucks. But in reality, well, it would just be a selection of what kind of player they represented. Okay, so what if we, what if we come up with the projected contract value in a different way and maybe more along the lines of what uh, Matt Swartz, uh, how Matt Swartz goes about projecting arbitration values, right? Where you find uh, comparables or you know, something along those lines to say, 
you know, uh, everything else being equal, um, uh, you know, Aralis Chapman would receive uh, five years and $90 million or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, if you created a model that basically said, like, based on the characteristics and how similar position players or similar players at that position have been paid, um, and you could come up with a model that, you know, accounts for different dollar per war at different positions and different skill sets, then potentially you could come up with something that says, okay, this is the expected market value of this player. But even then, I think because the number of contracts for most of these agents is so small, like, you know, most guys aren't Scott Boris or Excel or Aces or one of the big firms. They only have a few guys. And so, like, if, you know, they get, like, three long-term deals in a 10-year period and one of their guys just, you know, had an affection for the team he was drafted by and wanted to play with his friends and one other guy gave a home team discount because he, you know, got a $10,000 signing bonus and he just wanted to get his first good cash in, you could be like, well, this agent did a really bad job. But, you know, maybe the, the player was the one driving the deal. So um, I think it's it's tricky because you, you you have to factor in, like, original signing bonus. That matters. You have to factor in draft position. That matters. You have to factor in, you know, marketability of the player and where he's going. You have to factor in tax rates. There's, like, so many variables that you could theoretically do this. But it's not nearly as easy as just being like, wow, did this agent get his player more than $8, $8 million per win? Like, that that's not enough. It's not enough. Yeah. It it hardly ever is, Dave Cameron. Mm, oh, on this topic though of, uh, I mean, we were talking about NCRT and Kiermaier too. Although I, maybe Kiermaier is not very young. I don't know, but yeah, he's he turns twenty seven this year. Yeah, right. Uh, he got a bit of a late start, but he's uh, he's he does not have much experience. This is he was going to be running into his first opportunity for uh, to increase to get some sort of race. Uh, well, th- this. Uh, war- works as a nice segue to another topic about which you were recently, which is clubs giving raises to very good players who but uh, who are players who are very good but are nevertheless um, not do raises necessarily. They're not uh, contractually obligated to be receiving raises. Um, I think that you cited a couple of notable examples. There was Mookie Betts in... Boston. Yep. What did the What did the Red Sox offer him? They gave him nine hundred fifty thousand dollars. Okay, and there was Chris Bryant in Chicago. Yeah, he got one million fifty thousand dollars. And now he did not have any sort of arbitration eligibility. However, correct. Both of these players had no leverage. They basically just had to accept whatever the team gave them. Right. Uh, now I, I remember first encountering this. I think that you you wrote about it uh, about it. Sorry, <clears throat> brief Canadian interlude. The uh, in the case with the case of Mike Trout, uh, because he had just had what an MVP season or MVP quality season. Yeah, he finished second again, but he was coming off two straight ten win seasons. And then what was the at that point? The Angels gave him a, a million bucks. They gave him a million bucks, yeah. which is uh, it was like suppose, double the league minimum, basically. Right, and I, and I suppose that that's. I mean, on the one hand, that's fine. On the other hand, it's it almost draws attention to the fact that they are. Uh, they're basically, I mean, they're benefiting considerably at his uh, at his expense. Right. I mean, you know, like it, most other teams in that situation would have given him six hundred thousand, so they could look at it and objectively say, "We're giving you four hundred thousand dollars more than any other team would would, or not any other team, but most other teams would do." So remember our generosity in a few years. And you know, Mike Trout did sign an <laughs> under market uh, team friendly contract not that much longer after that, and we don't know how much. That was influenced by Trout getting an extra $400,000 gift from the Angels, uh, you know, a year before that. 
probably not that much. Uh, you wouldn't think that a guy would leave fifty or hundred million dollars on the table because he got four hundred thousand dollars twelve months ago. Uh, but you never know. Now the Cubs gave uh, Brian what one one point zero five million? Correct, one million okay. fifty thousand. Yeah. Now and did he? Because the player doesn't necessarily have to sign the contract. Right, Betts didn't sign the contract. He was just okay. renewed. Right, so 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 Brian actually did sign the contract. Right, Brian accepted the offer. Yeah, he was like, I accept the offer. Yeah. Here is my right. signature, right. and I'm I agree to this. Whereas Betts, I think the, the quote you cited was Betts said he had a different figure in mind. Right, he, yeah, and it'd be curious <laughs> to hear like what Mookie actually thought would have been fair. Mm-hmm. I I would love to know. Now, is that him? Was that actually Mookie Betts saying that, or is that his represent, representative? Well, Betts is the one who actually said it to the media. My guess is um, he sat down with his reps, and um, you know they potentially decided, hey, let's take a stand here and like basically make a claim that like the system is unfair to all players. We want to make some kind of public statement about it, um, and how do we do that? And we refuse to sign the contract, and then it becomes a story. Right, and then there was a third case, uh, and this this pertained to Carlos Correa, right? Right, yeah. What happened there? So we don't know for sure because this isn't like you know they don't release a transcript of negotiations. But the Astros renewed Correa at the league minimum, which is either just like a really awful thing to do to your best young player. Or more likely, based on conversations I had with people who worked for other teams, no one from the Astros would talk to me about this, but, you know, the belief within the game is that teams like the Astros uh, use this kind of um, threat of renewal at the league minimum to deter people from doing what Betts did. So they don't want the story in the paper of, um, you know, you didn't sign the, the contract we gave you. They don't want people making a fuss about the, the pre-arb scale. Um, they would rather just just kind of go away and just be reported as like everyone signed. Okay, let's moving on to like the pitcher who got hurt today. So the threat is, hey, if you don't sign what we're going to give you, the offer we give you, then we're going to renew you for less money. So in order to take that kind of like stance and get some publicity for the fact that um, these guys are you know uh, in a position where they have no leverage in, in negotiating their salary, um, there's a financial cost to do so. So the the expectation in the game from other teams who don't know for sure what happened but are guessing based on, you know, kind of their information um, is that Correa was probably offered something more than the league minimum. And like Betts, he refused to sign it. So then the team punished him by renewing him with the league minimum. In, you know, what is the uh, – is there any precedent for this happening? And, and what has it meant for the player's decision to sign later on? Yeah, I mean, so this has happened before in baseball. That's why other teams were like, "Oh yeah, this is the this is the renewal punishment." Basically, um, I didn't get specific examples of other situations, and a lot of times um, these things aren't always reported. So that it's probably happened and just not been reported, or it was with a lesser player who it didn't look that weird when they got renewed at the league minimum, or some number like maybe a team goes five thousand over the league minimum, so it's not quite so obvious. Um, so we don't know. We don't have like a you know a database of players who tried to not sign their contracts and they got renewed for lesser amounts of money. But this has been a common practice in baseball. Yeah, and do you do you think there's going to be any sort of uh, uh, consequences for for the teams that uh, I mean, who who is it working out worse for the Astros, the Red Sox, the Cubs, I mean, and I then and then Bryant, Betts, Correa. I think the Astros are probably the losers in this scenario because they get the bad PR of renewing Correa at the league minimum at the same time that Betts and Brian are getting a million dollars each or close to a million dollars. So I think from that perspective, you could be like, hey, look, you know, whether your offer was 50000 more, 100000 more, whatever, couldn't you just give him that 
save the bad PR. <laughs> like, just let him take his little stance, which is really an anti-union stance. It's not an anti-team stance. Like, the people like to look at this as, like, the teams are screwing the players. This is the deal the union agreed to. The union is the one who set up uh, a system that systematically takes money from young players and gives it to veterans. And the union could fight for a very different pay scale if they wanted to. So this is essentially Betts and Cray are taking a stance against their union's position, not against the team's. Is that how is that how they portray it, or they conceive of it? Do you suppose? I mean, my guess would be that they probably just see it as like we're just taking a stance for our players, and they don't necessarily say like we're trying to like stick it to Tony Clark. But the reality mm-hmm. is like you cannot expect teams to unilaterally pay players more than they have to uh, when there's no negotiation, right? Like if you had the ability to buy, um, I don't know, cocaine for like uh, thirty cents an ounce or something. And you knew you were okay. You were morally okay with like being a cocaine distributor. You'd be like, "Oh, great! There's no one else in Maine that wants to buy cocaine from this person. I can make a killing." And you would just like turn this into a huge cash fund. And you'd be like Carson Sestouli, cocaine dealer. Cocaine and, dealer. Yeah. And then you'd stop editing Fangraphs and you'd stop doing podcasts and you'd be a filthy rich man. And yeah. if no one else was bidding on it, you'd be like. Why would I pay 35 cents an ounce or 40 cents an ounce or, you know, whatever? I'm just going to pay whatever I have to pay because there's no competition. And that's the situation that the teams find themselves in is there's no incentive besides just trying to buy some good PR or some good goodwill with the players for these teams to pay significantly more than the league minimum because this is the system that the league and the teams agreed to. Right. Yeah. That's how, that's how it is. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, well, on this uh, note of uh, dealing... Uh, dealing cocaine. Let's stop <laughs> the program. Uh, thank you, Dave Cameron, for participating. No problem. You have fulfilled your obligation. That is Dave Cameron. He's the managing. That's Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.